Add Passion and Stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're in New York today with Jonathan Waxman, one of the very first people we ever called at Share Our Strength to get involved in our anti-hunger work. Um, Jonathan, at the time you had the restaurant Jams. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Good seeing you. And good seeing you. And Billy Harris, who has been with Share Our Strength for 15 years now. Just about. Auctioneer yeah. extraordinaire. The LA Times say that nice. you are a perfect blend of shtick and charity. And I think you've done more than 100 events for us. I've done in 15 years probably more than 200 events, which is great. More than 200. More than 200, wow. yeah. It's it's a lot. Uh, well, it's I've done lot. more than 400. So I, we're, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> but I've got I'm, 34 I'm, years. Yeah, exactly. In any case. Uh, I'm really, honored to be here. Really glad to have you both to our weekly conversation on food, on passion, on making a difference in the world. And uh, the two of you are about all of that. Jonathan, you've done uh, an extraordinary thing by bringing a form of cuisine over 30 years to, to the rest of this country. And talk a little bit about food as your creative expression and release. I was in, uh, I went to Israel last month uh, for a um, culinary cultural trip. And it was a wonderful trip on many levels. One was, you know, I'm a ter- terrible Jew and I hadn't been to Israel yet. And I'll be 69 this year. So I, it was, so long, was first time. Lo- long overdue. Yeah. And I was, talking to someone yesterday about you know this whole movement in israel these young chefs and not some old chefs like my age like uri Burry up in um, Accra. but what's happening is that that they're in probably the same position that america was in 30 to 40 years ago where they're starting to have all these young chefs from various nationalities ethnicities backgrounds some are israeli some are from poland you know they're from all over the world but they're in, in that sort of you know that startup mode where they're they're learning about themselves and opening restaurants like crazy and realizing what wonderful raw products they have and the wine industry is is burgeoning and it's it's a really interesting time and i was thinking about way back when when i started i went to paris in 1976 and I had been a trombone player professionally, and that's all I knew. And I went to Paris, and I went to Paris on a whim. I was going to ask you what triggered it. And you're, you're saying, well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you the story. The, okay. I'll tell you the quick story. I'll tell you the one. Tell you the long story. I just want to hear the trombone players. Um, I was, um, I was, I was playing in a band, and we were playing in, in Hawaii, in Maui, and the band broke up. And my friends in Hawaii go, "You have two options." You could sell drugs or work in a restaurant. So, um, you know, since I got the old adages that rock and roll players always got drugs for free, I didn't really need drugs of any sort. And so I went to work in a restaurant, and I went to work literally as a dishwasher busboy. And within six months, I became the manager. And the Scottish guy who owned the restaurant was called the Rusty Harpoon in Connapoly Beach, befriended me, and we, uh, and I got a little bit of the restaurant bug from him, but nothing about fine cuisine. And uh, when how I, old were you at the time? I was 22, okay. 23. And I got back to the mainland, and my father looks at me and goes, okay, dude, time to get a real job. 
So he wrote in a matchbook uh, a guy's name, Jerry Gamez, and a telephone number. So I called this guy, Jerry. I said, okay, my father told me to call you, but okay, just tell me, is it insurance? <laughs> but my father knew a lot of people. Anyway, so I went, he says, just come and see me. So I went to see him, and I ended up at age 24 selling Ferraris. The only prerequisite that I had to buy a pair of Gucci shoes, and this is 1973. So I had no idea what Gucci shoes were. You know, I was you know, this kid in Berkeley. And anyway, so I started selling Ferraris, and at the same time, Chez Panisse was starting up at that point. They had opened in 71, and by 73, 74, they were starting to get some traction. And the woman whose whose husband owned the Ferrari dealership was what we now call Foodie. And she had this friend named Mary Risley, and she goes, ever thought about taking a cooking class? I said, no, what's that? And she goes, okay. So call Mary up. So I signed up for a cooking class with Mary Risley for six weeks. And the head me- mechanic and I signed up, of course. And he was just wonderful character. So we signed up, and... Um, uh, he didn't get bitten by the bug, but I did. And when I was at school there, uh, unbeknownst to me, the woman, Mary Risley, signed me up for a course in Paris at a place called La Varenne. And then she took me out to lunch one day, and she says, you know, I signed you up for a course because I think you become a chef. I said, what's, what's a chef? I had no idea what a chef was. And so she goes, if you can get 6000 bucks, you can go to Paris and go to cooking school. So I went to my father and my mother. I said, you know, I've never asked for money. I paid for my entire school, and I had a music scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my father goes, so how much do you need? I said, $6,000. He goes, so what happens? I said, well, I guess I become a chef afterwards. He goes, uh, with this sort of haughty look, he goes, what do you become, the chef at Sizzler and, and, and <laughs> roast steaks? And, and I said, I don't think so. So anyway, so I, I went off to Paris, and I arrived on my birthday in, on November fifteenth, nineteen 1976, I didn't speak French, and I had no idea what I was doing. But um, I ended up going to uh, language school, Alliance Francaise, in Paris. And the first day I meet this guy, Chuck Baker, who was a fashion photographer for the New York Times. And he invited me to come live with him and these fashion models and and the director, Marie Claire, Sounds hard. Uh, Sounds hard. So I ended up staying, living with these models and this fashion (laughs) photographer. Uh, going to school, love Ren, and uh, learning you about just stayed. I, I, it was it was a fairly amazing, crazy, weird, bizarre time. But I knew something was up, in because at that time in France, um, people like Paul Bocuse and Roger Verger and uh, all these people were on the cover of Paris Match, which is their life magazine, and. So they, the French were putting these, and they called them Nouvelle Cuisine, you know, uh, advocates. And what that meant, it's kind of a complicated story about what they were doing. But basically, they were kind of reinterpreting Escoffier. And because I was at school learning Escoffier, I also wanted to find out Say what that means for folks who don't well, know. Well, Escoffier was the sort of the person that codified and put together all the regions of France in a cookbook. And he made it for professional chefs that they can cook any dish that was in the lexicon of French cooking. Not any dish, but a lot. There's 25 recipes for Dover Sole, for instance, and whatever. So um, I was learning how to do all that, but then I was going out at night and learning all this other crazy stuff that these guys are doing. You know, they're combining weird ingredients like scallops with rhubarb and uh, roquefort and steak. And that had never been heard of in, in France before. 
And it was right at, the, right at that point that there was a little bit of a Japanese influence coming in. And there was also a Spanish influence and an Italian. I mean, they, those days, countries were so separated in terms of cuisine. France and Spain had no crossover except on the borders. And then there was crossover. Anyway, so I got back to America and I lucked out. I went to work for this place called Domaine Chandon in Napa Valley. And I worked for uh, Roger Verger and Paul Bocuse. And this guy, crazy German chef, and a guy uh, named Philippe Gentil, who's still in Napa Valley. Wonderful Philippe. I ate a Paul Bocuse two weeks ago. And, and um, Philippe and I were buddies. I spoke French. He didn't. And I, so he was, I was his guide to America. And he was, anyway, he was my guide culinary-wise. And uh, from there, I went to Chez Panisse. I got lucky. Well, sounds like you made some of your own luck as well. Well, it was it was, but but so but going back the long sort of story about why I'm known for California cuisine per se is that um, I grew up in Berkeley. My parents, my grandparents had had ranches in Sonoma, but my parents were from New York. My mother was from Bedside. My father was from Brooklyn, um, for the Bronx, excuse me. And they loved food. They had that you know that passion for going out to eat. So we would go out to eat crazy restaurants when I was a kid in San Francisco. You know, Japanese, Chinese, uh, uh, Mexican, you, the whole gamut of stuff. And my father could, kind of considered himself a gourmand. And so he had friends in these French restaurants. We'd go there and get treated like royalty. But um, my mother was a really great home cook. And I think she didn't get it from her mother because my grandmother was like the worst cook in the world. So my mother must have learned it from someone else because my mother was a very well-schooled. And my mother was, a, was an intrepid explorer of food like she would go down to mexico and she went to hotel cesar and learn how to make caesar salad she would go to fresno and go to armenian uh food stores and buy grape leaves and all these different she was a really amazing person in that respect so i I grew up in kind of a multinational food environment so out of all that stuff what is California cuisine? It really means that it's all those cultures coming together in California with all the great, yeah. the easy things that grow in California. You know, California is known for wine. It's known for uh, uh, chickens. Well, that's a long story. Uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's the next episode, the, the chicken episode. Uh, like up in Sonoma, Luther Burbank was the greatest uh, sort of uh, food scientist about with with berries and fruit and and he really codified that whole industry. Uh, you had UC Davis, which was experimenting with, you know, fruit trees and grapes and things like that. But the most important thing was that all this stuff relied upon, like, the Italians in San Francisco, the Chinese immigrants in San Francisco, uh, the Japanese. Uh, all these different, the Mexican culture was so strong for me that they all kind of contributed to something, this amalgam of things that synthesized together forms this this thing called California. And it kind of stayed in California until you brought it to other places. Yeah, I think people didn't really even know what it was. But uh, I think if, if, I, if I had to put my finger on it, it's, it's, what it is really, it's about cooking over a grill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think <laughs> if I had to be so way. simplistic about it, uh, that's really um, – and the other thing was seasonal, that things – you took things out of the garden because you did. And they were cheap and, yeah. and plentiful – when things weren't cheap and plentiful, you didn't buy because they were too expensive. So it was seasonal 
I mean, farm to table is, is such a silly term. Where else does it come from? Yeah, where else? You know, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not uh, outer space to table. Yeah. You know, um, so I grew up in in a farm farm to table or uh, you know from the from the producer to the table style of food. But um, I didn't realize other people didn't do that, especially in the in the food industry and in the restaurant industry. People bought according to what was on their menu. And that was kind of a revelation for a lot of people, mm-hmm. that I threw the menu away and wrote it myself every day. Sure. And that was that was really the key, that I just decided to cook whatever I wanted to cook, depending on what I found in the market. And what was available that day. All right. right. Now I see why you, Billy Harris and Jonathan Waxman, are friends, because you basically do whatever you want to do as well, Billy. And I, I, your, do. Your, your path, <laughs> I, I do. Your, your path was, was <clears throat> not completely a straight line either, right? A uh, degree in theater, uh, or at least yeah. studied in, yeah. at San Francisco oh, yeah. State. I was um, a kid actor. I did stand-up. I worked on cruise ships. Had nothing to do with fundraising at all. But I, first of all, I love these podcasts, and especially in chef land to hear chefs like Jonathan all talk. You know, it's always great to see people's paths and where it brings you to this point for starters. But, yeah, I, I, I come from the other side of the fence of all this, and it's it's still even 30 years later of doing all this that I find myself in this position of working with some of the, you know, really the finest culinary talent in the world. I was at, I know I interrupted you before, but I was at Paul Bocuse two weeks ago with Danielle for the first time, and that was a great experience for the Bocuse store. But that's that's for your next episode. And you sure. have figured out a, a way to yeah. not only enjoy food and yeah. all the blessings of it, but to, like Jonathan has through Share Our Strength, like we yeah. do at Share Our Strength, to um, leverage it for a very powerful yeah. public purpose and social good yeah. uh, by working as an auctioneer, not just for an uh, auctioneer, I think, doesn't describe yeah, it's not, it. It is not the right, right term. Because yeah. I, I see you on stage doing an auction, but there's so much that went into that in advance in terms of putting it together and sure. building the relationships. Sure. But so where did that part start for you? Yeah. And there's two, there's really kind of, um, you know, like if you go left and right or go right in life, go left in life or right in life kind of things that really specifically um, happened to me. Because, you know, that very quick backstory, once again, kid actor, did stand-up, did improv, worked on cruise ships. And what were you doing on cruise ships? I was doing the comedy. I was doing stand-up on cruise ships. And then I got into corporate gigs. I was like, hey, we're going to hire you to MC a sales meeting for Microsoft in Hawaii. So I probably said two things at the time. What's Microsoft? And I said, where's Hawaii? You know, I was living on 2nd Avenue and 10th Street in New York. But um, in regards to turning that into business, I really – because I came – all my actor friends and comedian friends and, you know, that stand-up life was a rough road. And I did start getting involved with corporate events, which led into, look at it this way, auto shows, boat shows, trade shows, sales meetings. I really found a niche in that corporate space. And then some two things happened. A girlfriend of mine from college, Lauren Tripp, maybe 25 or six years ago, because I'm thinking her son is now about 27 or 28. And the auctioneer at the fundraiser for the kids' school got sick. And I had, I was, <laughs> she called me up and said, we have a fundraiser for the kids' school, and the auctioneer got sick. And she's like, you're funny. You took fast, and uh, could you come and do this auction? And it was in Pasadena or Altadena, California. And I just did my shtick. I was being funny. I was, like, charming. I was like, hey, who wants to give me a few bucks to go to Hawaii for the kids' school? We're going to build a playground. And it just felt natural, and it was very much in my DNA. And that was literally the beginning of – because I've been self-employed my whole life. And I was like, hey, I could probably make a few extra bucks. You know, being an auctioneer, I'm doing stand-up, I'm doing corporate gigs, let's try and do some auctions. So that literally, you know, 30 years later, 27 years later, that was getting into 
literally the fundraising world. And we all have a mutual friend that really changed my life. In 1993 or 1994, some friends introduced me to a mutual friend of ours named Joe Allegro. Mm -hmm. And they said, he's at this place called the Food Network. And I said, what's the Food Network? And I met Joe, and he was involved with all of their live events at the time, producing the Food Network before he went to Share a Strength, before it was really rebranded No Kid Hungry. And I met Joe through some mutual friends. And, you know, he was producing live culinary events. And like most events, it's just fun to have an MC. It's fun to have a host. It's fun to have someone who knows how to work the room. And that segues back to when you said, you know, you are so much more than an auctioneer. And even to this day, I mean, I've done thousands of auctions for so many great organizations. And I've always just looked at it as, and people call me every day. I'm like, I am not an auctioneer. I'm a funny guy with a microphone that knows how to work a room. And that's just been my place in all this. I like the humorous angle. I like the comedy. I like getting people engaged. And, of course, I've fine-tuned my auctioneering skills over all these years of just doing it. If there are No Kid Hungry dinners for 50 people or No Kid Hungry events for 500 people, so they all kind of come in different sizes and shapes. And then what happened was I was doing auctions. I had met Joe Allegro. He was at Food Network. I very slowly started just hosting some culinary events for the Food Network. I'm like, hey, Bobby, is that cilantro or basil? You know, I, and I still don't know the difference. I can barely cook an egg. It is funny that I've worked with chefs in the culinary community for so long, and I really, I'm really, i the worst people. Like, They think they'll come over and they'll get like a six-course meal at my house. I'm like, I do make a good roasted chicken, but that's about it. But Joe went to No Kid Hungry, and yep, he literally had uh, yep. with Share of Strength, yep. and maybe that was in when I first started working, 2005, 2006, something like that. And I got an email from him, and he said, I'm at Share of Strength, and he was involved with putting together some of the early first dinners. And, and, and actually, because I was just in France with Danielle, one of the very first events I did was with Danielle at Cafe Ballou in Palm Beach when Gavin Kaysen was about a, Daniel Ballou. Daniel Ballou. Yeah. Gavin Kaysen was a sous chef at the time, and, and that was a long time ago. But really through Joe, working with him at the Food Network, and then when he went to Share Our Strength and really brought me in, because I've really been a full-time professional MC host, whatever you want to call me, my entire career. And I come from a whole line of vaudevillian, real performers, you know, um, uh, my first gig was in Grossinger's in 1979 as a magician's assistant, you know, and I thought that was pretty funny, things that you learn. Of course, you and Jonathan know each other, but how did you guys come to know each other? I really met at Jonathan at Barbudo probably in the early years of it, of it opening, and kind of what segues real well with that is with an organization like No Kid Hungry and being involved for so long because people do ask me all the time. So when I go and do an event, and in the beginning days of working with Daniel Balud and, and Stephen Piles in Dallas, and I know he's been with you like since day yep. one as well, exponentially for me, I would go and host a culinary event with people I didn't know at the time, and we'd do a dinner with Stephen Piles in Dallas, and he would invite five chefs. So all of a sudden, 15 years ago, I just met five new people and amplify all my time. Everything I've done over the past, especially years connected with No Kid Hungry, is because of No Kid Hungry, because I would do an event, and there'd be five chefs, and everyone does a course. And Jonathan does a course, and someone does the appetizer. So all of a sudden, I met five chefs. And then you do another dinner, and there was five more chefs. So all of a sudden, I was the guy, I was the conduit guy 
who really worked and started to know everybody. And every organization, every single one over the past 15 years is because of my relationship with you and No Kid Hungry. I'd give a couple examples of some other organizations that you I'd say Alex's Lemonade stand for pediatric cancer the most. I've been with them for about 12 years already, and they have five galas around the country. I work with the March of Dimes. I work with the New York Food Bank. I work with the L.A. Food Bank. I work with the San Francisco Food Bank. So they're not all necessarily food-driven, AIDS, autism, breast cancer, childhood hunger. And I really just hope that everything that I created and do and with my shtick and the way that I work a room, I, you know, I'm a believer in what I do and do it different than a typical Christie's or Sotheby's auctioneer. And You know what a lot of people probably don't realize is certainly at the events we do, yeah. the auction may raise as much or more than the dinner itself. Oh, yeah. So yeah. people come because they want to experience Jonathan Waxman's sure. cooking, sure. right, and some of the colleagues that Jonathan will bring in. And when they get there, they find out that there's these great other opportunities yeah. through the auction. Sure. And uh, it raises a tremendous amount of money. For yeah. I mean, in my career, so I probably raised about $100 million, and I'm super proud of that. And, you know, for smaller organizations – you know, and, and even foundations and fundraisers, and even if they're starting off, sometimes exactly what you said, the auction is all of the fundraising if they're a new organization and they're renting out the ballroom and paying for all the food and want to bring all the right donors. There's costs involved with that. So sometimes they're like, if we make an extra hundred or $200,000 tonight, in the, so they're like, no pressure, but that's what we need to make, you know, make tonight. But, yeah, like you said, and, and, and also the auction space over the past 20 years And I tell a lot of people, with the rise of the celeb chef world over the past 20 years or 25 since the beginning of the Food Network, also in the fundraising space, and it really doesn't matter what the organization is, it could be an autism event, it could be an AIDS event, it could be a No Kid Hungry event, it could be a pediatric cancer event. But what happened because of the exposure of the Food Network, it was very easy for organizations to go, Hey, what if we can get that Bobby Flay guy? What if we can get Giada and go, hey, we're going to auction off a dinner with Giada cooking in your house? So it didn't have to be a hunger-related issue or it didn't just have to be a food bank issue because I'm involved with so many organizations and really with the explosion of chefs and the celeb chef in fundraising have really gone hand in hand. Jonathan, it sounded like maybe your ambivalence about celebrity. You were saying, you know, the fact that you're on TV and yeah. you're on, uh, you know, you're on a, a judge on a, you know, a top master chef show or something like that. Are, are you ambivalent about it? Or, or I, I was incredibly ambivalent about it. Um, listen, I, you know, I love watching Emerald because I knew Emerald since he was 24 years this old. Emerald Lagasse. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and then Bobby Flay worked for me, and then you know, all of a sudden he went from this, you know, little skinny. A freckly Irish kid to, you know, the <laughs> most, you know, the, the one of the top people on the Food Network. Um, it, and I was very pleased by that. If I had a piece of his, you know, uh, upbringing, so to speak, I was proud of that. And then about um, 2006 or 2007, you know, when Bravo started doing Top Chef and then they did Top Chef Masters, um, I started getting calls from people. And, and my publicist, Sarah Abel, in 2008, says you really, we really want you to be on Top Chef Masters, and I said I'm not doing it. Number one, I'm too old. I, I was, you know, I I was just not into it for some reason, and she kept bugging me and bugging me and driving me crazy. And then, then I got a call from Tom Clickio, and Tom, I won't say the explicative that he <laughs> said over the phone, but he said just do it, and I said okay. Fine. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And more than I had fun doing it, um, 
I met a lot of people that I normally would not have had time to meet because we're like ships in the night. Like we, if I do an event for, you know, SOS or, or autism, whatever I do, I see people for, you know, two hours, say hi, and, and that's it. So, you know, we're like really like ships in the night. Um, but there's no quality time. And all of a sudden I was on this TV set for six weeks with Marcus and all these other chefs, Wiley and all these other Marcus Samuelson. Marcus Samuelson. All these these people. And I got to know them. And, um, you know, we realized that our journeys were so different Mm -hmm. and the stories about our journeys were so different. And, but there was one sort of core product is that we were all passionate about what we did. Um, and I enjoyed it. And Tony Matuana in in Chicago, who I'd heard about, I'd never eaten his restaurant. I always wanted to eat his restaurant. Uh, we became like brothers. And it was really edifying because it sort of solidified who I was as a chef because, number one, it, mean, it meant that I wasn't alone. Because a lot of times chef, being a chef is, 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 a, is, a, lonely, is a lonely business. Um and a lot of times you don't get the you know the immediate accolades or you know uh, you know it's not some people come to the restaurant and all that stuff, but you're from your peers what's the most important thing that you want you want the peer you know um, acknowledgement of who you are and 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 where you come as a chef and also it's collaborative and I really believe the whole collaborative thing for me is 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 super important um, you know there there are some people, chefs out there who you know, refuse to be collaborative. And I understand that. I get that. They're, you know, iconoclastic, whatever. But, you know, in, in this TV environment, we had, to, we had to be cooperative. You know, I think that being a shape and eats with Alice Waters, she's the one that really steered me in the direction of um, food really is a long history of different things. It's about curing hunger. It's about satisfying. No one even knows what the, the word restaurant means. Uh, Bill, you know what the word restaurant means? I'm sure it comes from some French term that you read that you're going to tell me. It means to restore your spirit. Restorative. Restore one's spirit. So you go to a restaurant, you you go there because you you want to fill your belly up and and, and put protein into your brain and all that stuff. That's that's a big part of it. I get it. But it's more important that it's a social environment where you go there as a family or as a business dinner or, or by yourself. And you walk in our doors. And we want to take care of you because when you leave, we want you to feel a little bit better. That we've we've taken care of not just your corpus Christi, but your your soul, your a little bit of and and I get I get to touch people's soul. I love that, and it's it, it's a big responsibility. Now, now, ironically, you also made mention that it's a lonely job. So there's this paradox of like you're you're making people feel part of something, but you're you're at the center of it and. There's a loneliness to that. And I hadn't heard that before. And a lot of the chefs and restaurateurs we've talked to, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, it's the same, thing. It it's the same thing like music. You know, and I'm sure Billy has the same thing where you go on stage and you're the, you're the, you're the center of attention for X amount of time mm-hmm. and you get off, it's lonely. Same thing with cooking. You, you, have, you have a great night. You, you have a bunch of people come in. They, you know, they, have, they see the smiles on their face. There, and then when they leave, there's an emptiness. Um, and then also there's, let's face it, it's a competitive world. Unless you stay on top of your world, you get passed by. I had a restaurant interruptus between uh, 1990 <laughs> and uh, 2001. And um, so basically I was 
10, 10, 11 years out of the business. And I, I did it. Without a, re- without a restaurant at all for that period? Without a, well, no, I had one restaurant, but mainly I didn't have a restaurant. But I consulted. I was involved with the restaurant world. But it was more tangential than anything else. During that time, I raised a family, got married, raised a family. And that was wonderful for me because I didn't have the obligation of being at the restaurant every night. And then the other part of it was I kind of lost contact with everybody. I went away. I remember at, at this dinner that being honoring me in, in South Beach a couple of years ago, Tom Clickio yeah. said, you know, so where the hell did Jonathan go? You know, we missed him. Yeah. And it was nice for him to say that. It was, it, was, it was kind of melancholy and a little strange, but I appreciated his sentiment. But it was great for me to go away for that time because I, I restored my batteries, my spirit. I, I, I recharged myself. And so when I got back into it, I felt that I was competitive again. And I did one really stupid thing. I opened this restaurant called Washington Park, which is a beautiful restaurant. And I loved everything else. But it wasn't innovative as far as I was concerned as, in, as a chef. I think you, you constantly has to have to reinvent yourself. You can't do the same shtick all the time. You've got to improve because other people have improved. And that's the funny thing about the industry in America now. So I go back to 1977 when I was at, at Domaine Chandon. So what this is 42 Two years, years later, mm-hmm. um, the world has changed. Mm. The world has really changed. The world has shrunk, which is great. There's a lot more people as chefs, so the com- competition is much more intense. There's a hell of a lot more restaurants than it used to be. Um, there's a lot more people gaining the game for different reasons. So as a chef, a lot of times you're a little paranoid. You're a little introspective. There's no one patting on the back saying you're fantastic every day. You have to do that, and that's hard to do. The dips and valleys of of being a celebrity chef or a celebrity anything, I think um, there's there's a lot of loneliness involved with it. So Billy uh, Jonathan talked about being you know center stage and then yeah. and then off and the loneliness of that. I think of you center stage whether you're on stage or not. I'm center stage all the time. Are you ever off stage? <laughs> I'm off stage, literally, but not figuratively, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm, in general, really always a positive person. I've just kind of always been like this, you know, full of zest and full of life. And yeah, I think it gets amplified a little bit when I'm on stage. But, yeah, I don't feel like I'm ever off stage. And and what makes it work? So you and I have been yeah. in a room a lot of times together. Yeah. You're on stage. I'm standing in the back. I'm watching an auction. Yeah. I know that we're trying to raise 400000 yeah. that night. And some nights we're going to hit five fifty or 600 And yeah. some nights we're going to hit we're 200 <laughs> And you stand. Sometimes you say, uh, you know, all I'm hearing is crickets, folks. Yeah. What when it works? Yeah. What makes it work? Uh, I think it's a combination. Like for all, you know, kind of the top level view, you always have to have the right people in the room. You have to have the right auction items, and then of course you always have to have the right amount of luck at any event. And I think it's also, um, you know, from an auction point of view, it's these days anything experiential is what people seem to that really they can't get anywhere that else. You can't right? get anywhere else. That's the, the magic. It, it, it is the magic. And Jonathan and I have worked together forever. If it's dinners with Jonathan Waxman, if it's a barbecue in your backyard, you know, especially when we're talking in the culinary space, because really almost everything I do is culinary driven. Even if it's organizations that don't have a culinary focus, the auction seems to be culinary driven because it's this experience that they want. And if it's Tom Colicchio cooking in your house or Jonathan Waxman cooking in your house or a trip up to Napa Valley with chefs, the experiential thing is a big deal. But there's also no rhyme, no reason, no guarantee. And you've been in the room with me over so many years now where you can sell the event this year for $100,000. And you can have the same people in the room next year um, at a different event 
And, it, you know, if we're talking a big ticket item, you know, because obviously I do auctions for smaller organizations or, or they don't have the media exposure where the whole auction raises $50,000. And you go, I did an event last night. The auction raised $750,000 where every single item sold for $100,000, which is real serious money. Because at some of these dinners, you have people in the room who are used to being able to buy whatever they want. Buy whatever they right? want. So if there's Absolutely. something that they can't buy, they can't get that it. makes it even It more makes it a lot easier. But, yeah, incredible. there is – and like I said, you, we've done so many events year after year where th- this year it raised 250 This year it raised 750 And people, trust me, they're going to write white papers on it and go, what was the difference? And I'm like, I have no idea, you know, because you have a lot of the same people oh, Bill, in the you room. Do. It's your timing was better. My timing was better. I know. <laughs> I, I don't want to say that it's me, Jonathan. But yeah. <laughs> I, I think luck is a big part of it. Actually, I, I've done auctions. Yes. I, I had to because whoever was doing it was <laughs> had, so terrible. Had to get the hook out. I, I had to like, get him off the stage, and I had to do it myself. And, you know, it's. I think there's a little bit of chutzpah there that you, number one, it's, it's of the moment. And, Absolutely. And you, and you could smell the crowd. Yep. Uh, the, the, you know, you know that uh, Clicky said to me one day. He says, "There's there's money in the room," and I knew what he meant by that. It says mm-hmm. people people wanted to spend money because they really believed in the cause, sure. and Absolutely. they want they want to give them a good reason to spend the money. It almost didn't matter if it was you know what it, what the item was because they just they, want to support they, the organization they want to support anyway. the organization, and it's a question of you know if, if Billy has a good zinger. <laughs> And, and that singer, you know, promotes the the cause up by you know that that item by thirty, fifty, hundred percent. Yeah. You know we, uh, you know I'm always astounded by that, but I I, I think too that um, that people do want to give. So my my kids went to this little uh, elementary school in the upper upper west side of Manhattan. My and my wife was the PTA president, and and one of the parents one day you know said to her, so you know I want to talk to you about. Um, you know this quality of the staff and in the school, and we, we need better math and all this stuff. And they had a gifted and talented program and a normal ed uh, program. And my wife kind of just gently looked over and said, "You know what? We got fifty homeless kids in the school. That's what my focus mm-hmm. is." Mm-hmm. And it really turned my head. And I I really thought about that. And you know that she had the wherewithal to kind of understand how to spin the conversation in the right direction, obviously, but also put the focus on these kids that. You know, their only meal that they got that day that was really uh, made with love and was substantial was from the school. Yeah, the school. And, 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 I, and that, that to me blows me away. I think, um, you know, I think there's a certain payback situation as a chef that um, I've gotten a certain point in my life, you know, I want to give back now. Celebrity chef and yeah. being involved in the community wasn't always this way. And one of the things that you did, in our world, Jonathan, was so important is you took a gamble on us early. When we came to you in 1984, nobody had ever heard of Share Our Strength. We didn't have a nickel to our name. We hadn't accomplished anything. And we asked you to do this. And I think that and now it's become a rite of passage for many chefs to follow in your footsteps or in Stephen Piles or in yeah. Danny Myers or whoever's. They, they see people who are successful in the industry that are giving back, and they realize that's an ingredient of what they've got to do. Well, Billy, think of what you're doing. You're doing something that is that is number one super important, but I think the awareness of what you do is so important because a lot a lot of times we ignore we ignore the you know, the plight of of the less fortunate, 
and we we kind of put blinders on you know we we want to be on our cell phones we want to be you know watching tv we want to you know uh, go out to restaurants have a great time oh it's easy but not it's, to say it, it's right? easy not easy to say. not to say and, and i and i'm i'm like i i was just in israel for this birthright thing and they asked me to do a benefit uh, at a at this new burn clinic and i went with gail simmons and you know and we you know we did a demonstration with these uh, mainly women that were burn burn victims that came from all over the media the Middle East uh, to go to the special clinic in, in in Tel Aviv, and you know what I I just loved being with these people. I loved seeing what the doctors could do, you know, and I wasn't bothered by you know their physical appearance because it, it you know it, it's daunting you know with someone who's you know had but the look in their eyes and the the fervor of these. And why are these three women? And they, at first, they started fighting about who was going to do what with helping me do my salad together. And I said, "Okay, so I said, ladies, calm down. We're going to we're going to do this together. We're going to be cooperative here." At the end of it, you know, these three women finally, you know, figured out how to work together and make, help me make this beautiful. We make this shaved vegetable salad. At the end of it, I just felt so good because I had given a little bit back. I had given first. I taught them how to, I think, make some some pretty cool food, which I thought was fun. But more importantly, I think that they we got to interact. You know, I I've got to be. We're just people, and we're in a situation, and they. If I could help them a little bit, that that was everything for me. Well, you know what, what you said earlier about uh, your trip to Israel and the kind of the culinary community there was thirty years behind ours. It made me think that there's a uh, young version of uh, Jonathan Waxman over there and a young version of Billy Harris and <laughs> Billy Shore know, know that should be talking made, to each yeah. other because yeah, now I course. think there's an opportunity for share our strength there. Sure. I don't mean as an organization, but I mean in terms of having an impact uh, when you, when you, when, when chefs start to understand that they have this, it's empowering that they have this ability to really make an impact in the community. Uh, I'd love us to be creating that up opportunity yeah. Yeah. outside the bounds of the U.S. as well. Yeah, I think that, that I, I, I'm I so lucky that I'm again involved with a, a profession that really is non-political, that has no, everybody has to eat. So why shouldn't we eat well? And why shouldn't we eat, now I'm in this whole thing, now this, I'm even getting a little crazy about this stuff, um, about what we put in our bodies really is is who we are and we can do better. We can put better things in our body, and I think um, you know this whole you know or the organic movement and you know all this stuff about you know how how food is processed and and what 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 you know getting people to stop eating processed food and packaged food and not put things in plastic anymore and recycling all that stuff. It sounds you know like this sort of liberal hocus pocus, but it's actually true. It's very true. And, and you know, if you go back 100 years, that's how people ate. That's how people lived their lives. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. We just kind of forgot about it. So what I'm curious about you is you talk about the history of food. You talk about uh, the word restaurant means restorative. There's an in, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about, like, how much of it for you is intellectual versus how much is just gut instinct? When you're a musician and you're on stage, the world, you, you go into this bubble. It just happens. All of a sudden, all those people that are in front of you you're performing for, doesn't matter. They actually stop. And you're in your this bubble where you're actually just playing. And 
the outside world doesn't doesn't come in. You You're sort in the of zone. It's like a runner you, in the zone. Runner is, and I, I think zone is a really perfect way to describe it. That's the right Cook, word. Cooking is, does the same thing for me. All of a sudden, I get in this weird, crazy bubble where nothing else matters except what I'm doing. I've talked to other chefs that get in this thing, what happens. And that's where the creativity happens. That's where your all the little bits and pieces of your past and things you stole from other chefs, you know, the, the, the influence of things that, that happen, um, how you feel that day. But it's all these ingredients laid out in front of you, and it's a puzzle. And how do you take the puzzle and create a, a wonderful meal out of it? And to me, that's that's creativity as a chef, and I think that's that's fun for me, and I, I enjoy it. A lot of creative people will tell you that any act of creativity mm-hmm. requires solitude at some level, right? Either before or during. It's just it's almost yep. uh, part of it. Uh, tell me what what's next for both of you. Uh, um, how do you think long term about um, what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, and and really, this is um, and it is a it is a perfect question because I've really taken the past. You know, 25 years of working with chefs and working with amazing organizations like No Kid Hungry and many others, and which both of you know three years ago, I said, you know all these chefs, and I know all these charities. I'm going to do my own thing, and I literally created the Billy Harris Dinner Series as an extension of everything else that I'm doing. And, and we just started year number three just two weeks ago in Los Angeles with Nancy Silverton. Jonathan hosted uh, my Halloween party at Barbudo last year. And it is, yes, it's the typical format of every other dinner, except it's I really drive the whole thing. So last night, as you know, we were at Gramercy Tavern in New York City, and people come in, and they have cocktails, and they have canapes, and they have dinner, and uh, they all have a small auction component. Last night it was, you know, dinner for four at uh, Gramercy Tavern with a 10-piece cookware set from Williams-Sonoma, because what I've learned since I've my whole career has been in this space, and especially in fundraising in the food world is that everyone loves to eat and drink and have a good time and we can all do that and at the same time raise a few bucks for people that are a little less fortunate. I'd like to know a little bit more, Billy, just about your own personal motivation and where it came from. You've done yeah. so much in the community to make yeah. an impact. Um, could you ever, I, I, I said to Jonathan uh, that you know he became a chef and he never looked back. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like you've looked back either. There's, a, there's other ways you could have probably made money or even more money. Exactly. Um, why has this been important to you? Well, they didn't hire me to host the Oscars this year, so <laughs> I had to keep doing what I'm doing. They'd, they'd rather go without a host. They'd rather go without a host, and I think they did just fine. That, that, that's, for, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't really find it that difficult of a choice. I just kind of fell into this space of doing events where you are helping other people. If it's children fighting a horrible disease, if it's uh, children um, you know, facing hunger-related issues, if it's breast cancer – and I just felt it was this crossroads of where I get to be funny and do my shtick and do what I love to do, what I've always done, and raise money for these organizations at the same time. I actually haven't looked back on that at all and have just kind of continued that path forward. And I've been fortunate enough to work with great organizations, work with great chefs, obviously great organizations and that without great chefs as well that are also doing doing good work as well. So. Uh, and after a, a week of it or even a night of it, yeah. uh, it looks like so much fun, but it's got to be exhausting too, it's, right? It, like, it, it's, you it, go back it, into it, your it, room and you're just like <laughs> Curl crash. up in a ball, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it, it is. But um, it's, uh, you know, that half-hour burst of energy, and it takes yeah. every ounce of my being 
And, uh, yeah, it's challenging for me, too, just personally when you're doing these great events and you think it has this potential and, and sometimes it falls a little flat and it'd be no different than a musician where you just take little mental notes like, you know, how can I tweak it a little bit differently? Like, you know, the other night on stage, something went for $20,000 and it was getting really close to that. And I said, look at it this way. It's only a dollar a day for the next 20,000 days. <laughs> Yeah. See? And you're laughing right now. And it did it, it made the, it made the, it took away the pain of the auction item and and so you're all laughing in the studio and that's always just been, you know, part of my shtick, hopeful hopefully my charm and you know, I do come from an improv background so I feel like if I can add anything like that to escalate and build the excitement of people at the end of the day opening up their not even just their wallets, but opening up their hearts for this organization. As Jonathan already said, you feel like there's people, they're coming anyway. Yeah. And it's just kind of how do we take them on that journey where it just adds the liveliness to the room and the energy of the room and, and raising money at the same time. Uh, if you had to pick a restaurant other than your own or other than one that you uh, auction off, yeah. Billy, um, just kind of a go-to restaurant. It might be a hidden gem. It might be in New York or somewhere else in the country. What should people know about the e that maybe they don't, uh, or, or where would you know if your if your wife's not talking you into making cod stew? Where would you all? Where would you all? Where would the Waxmans go? Well, it's interesting. Um, I, I I love L.A. and obviously I started part of my career there, and when I was the chef at Michael's, and Michael Chimarusi of Providence to me might be the least uh, uh, this is no, LA? Le- yeah. least known amazing chef. In the world, one of the all-time. Uh, I think um, I've known Michael since. What's he was his last name? Chimarusti. Michael Chimarusti. And he, uh, I've known Michael since he was 18 years old because he worked for my friend Larry Forgione back then. And he's a big burly guy with a crazy beard, and um, he he might be the nicest person I've ever met in my life. Um, he might be the most intense person without even knowing that he's intense. But his food is transformative. Yeah. Um, and the restaurant's called Providence. Providence. Yeah. And um, he does things with especially seafood and fish that um, we're talking about magicians. He really is a magician. Yeah. He's, um, uh, I, 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 every time I bring someone there and they, they say, well, it's a little fancy. And then I said, just shut up and sit down and eat. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's almost because it's so California, like it's almost casually amazing, and I, 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 I can't tell you how how impressed I am with Michael Chimarusti. Wow. Okay, that's a good endorsement. How old is he? Billy Harris. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Italy as well, and it, it, this has nothing to do with money. There's a little town called Pacciano, which is next to Panicale, where we spend some time in. And there's a restaurant called Il Casale, the farmhouse, on top of a hill overlooking Umbria and Tuscany. And I don't even know the woman's name. We've been going there for 10 years. Everyone just calls her Nona because she's the woman who owns the place. It's her grandmother. And she cooks lunch and dinner six or seven days a week for 30 or 40 years. And we've had dinners with 13 or 14 people sitting on a table looking over the Tuscan sunset. And, and the, the piece de resistance of, of all of this is that it's maybe three or 400 euros for 14 people to have dinner. Because the wine comes from their property. The olive oil comes from their property. She cooks in the kitchen and serves fresh pastas. It is a dream. It is. You are literally in a dream. And if somebody can't remember the name of the restaurant, just go to Italy because you can't yeah, have just, a bad Yeah, just, take, just, just take a left on Via de Croce, whatever, and stop in the first farmhouse you see. Uh, I am so 
grateful to both of you for being part of this conversation. Jonathan, for being part of Share Our Strength for 34 years, really incredible, and for being a spark, not just being part of it, but being a spark that got so many other chefs and restaurateurs involved. Um, thank you, and just congratulations on your success. It's really thank been a treat to talk to you today. Uh, and Billy Harris, we're going to see each other a lot more over the next we, few months. We, we will. We've got a lot of dinners. <laughs> we've got a lot of dinners uh, But thanks for everything you've done. You've made an enormous, enormous difference my pleasure. On, on, in the yeah. lives of kids in this country. It's absolutely my pleasure. Always honored to be here and part of this organization for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. We hope you'll listen to our other uh, podcast episodes. If you go to our website at Add Passion and Stir, uh, you can rate us, you can rank us, you can subscribe, let your friends know about us. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.